Welcome to The Podium, the podcast about optimal health and high performance. I'm Dr. Kevin Sprouse. This discussion was created as a resource for the patients in my practice, where I have the pleasure of working with a very small group of professional athletes and high-performing individuals from around the world. So why Podium? Well, it represents the pinnacle. The winner of any race takes their place atop the podium, much as any expert in their field is often asked to share their wisdom and present from the podium. For me, it represents the intersection of athletic and cognitive performance. Our podcast dissects the principles of performance for my patients and then disseminates pertinent, actionable information with them in mind. If you happen to have found us and are not a patient, that's great. I hope you enjoy. But please understand, if you're not a current patient, any information contained herein is not meant for you to take as medical advice. You need to speak with your doctor before implementing any change in your health and fitness regimen. There is no doctor-patient relationship established via this podcast. For my patients, of course, that relationship already exists. On this short episode, I had the pleasure of talking with Dr. Aaron Bagish, who's the director of the Cardiovascular Performance Program at the Massachusetts General Hospital Heart Center. He is one of the preeminent uh, sports cardiologists and one of the folks who has been instrumental in putting together the protocols and algorithms that really govern and define how we are addressing COVID in the athletes that we work with. Cardiology around COVID is a topic that is, um, like everything else in COVID, is really unfolding and a little bit murky, but we're learning more and more. And with the help of people like Aaron, we are starting to to really know how to how to address and assess these things in our patients. So when we wanted to get together and do just a, a short episode here on COVID cardiology, um, I was really thankful that Aaron was willing to sit down and kind of talk over the questions, the concerns, the progression of the science, and kind of what is recommended as we address patients who are uh, recovering from COVID and looking to get back to an athletic uh, endeavor, training, competition, and whatnot. So hope you enjoy this talk with Dr. Aaron Bagish. So Aaron, thanks for joining me on the podcast. We're going to talk um, a little bit here about sports cardiology in the age of COVID. And this is something that um, you've been kind of a, a world leader on and a, a brand new topic. So thanks for joining us to dig into this. Yeah, Kevin, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, we were just chatting a little bit before we hit record about this idea that with COVID, there's been a lot of uh, polarization in how people look at the severity of it. Either it's it's not that bad or it's totally deadly. Um, and and there's you can argue either point, but what is missed often is that there's a lot in between not so bad and deadly. And one of the things that we're seeing is that there's potentially some some cardiac involvement. Um, it, when we look at that, there's kind of two ways, at least as far as I can tell, that uh, that the heart gets involved. One through the cytokine storm and the massive inflammation, uh, and the other is through direct infection of the heart muscle cells. Can you talk a little bit about those two things? Yeah. So I think unpacking a couple things first, and that is you're spot on that COVID is a disease that um, follows a spectrum of very critical severe illness that leads to fatality 
Uh, and on the other side of the equation, you have a growing number of young, otherwise healthy people, many of whom are going to be the people listening to this, your professional athletes, your master's athletes, who get this disease and either have no symptoms or have very mild symptoms. So we have to remember that, that, that COVID is a, is a highly heterogeneous disease. You know, we learned early on in the pandemic when we were seeing uh, largely older and sicker people in the hospital that COVID infection can and does lead to heart injury in you know, roughly 30% of people who are sick enough to be hospitalized. And as you alluded to, there are two forms of, of heart muscle injury that come from COVID. The first is the, the stress inflammation cytokine-mediated injury, which is typically thought to be a relatively short-term stunning of the heart, which resolves as the COVID infection gets better. And the second, which we're still learning a lot about, is this concept of true myocarditis, which is where viral um, pathogens actually invade the heart muscle and set up an inflammatory cascade, which can have much more long-lasting effects and effects that are very relevant when people return to exercise. Yeah. So in that first case with the cytokine storm, is it in the, in the, in the massive inflammation, is it fair to say that that's primarily in the, the hospitalized and severely sick, or do we see that much in the, the people who weather the illness at home and, and recover kind of quickly? Well, we really don't know much about that second group because early on in the pandemic, uh, right. people who were sick but not sick enough to be hospitalized were basically told to stay home and weather the storm. And so we don't have uh, the diagnostic data on those people to really understand how common it was for them to have heart involvement and, and what the severity of it was. So this population of, of otherwise healthy people that got sick but weren't sick enough to get a hospital bed is one that we're really just starting to unpack now. Okay. And, and with those patients, kind of irrespective of their course, um, if, if, it, if this type of injury kind of runs its course uh, and burns out, so to speak, is that something that can be really assessed, the progression afterwards, can it be assessed based on symptoms more readily than, say, a myocarditis? In other words, if someone's feeling good, they can kind of slowly get back to doing what they do. Yeah, I think we're, we're, we're now gaining enough anecdotal experience with people who have had COVID getting back into exercise routines um, to say with some degree of confidence, although I, I think we have, still have some, some things to learn about this, that if people are sick and recover fully and start engaging in exercise again and feel good, that there's very little reason to, to pause for concern and do more testing. The people I think we're most interested in, and, and again, we're still learning about this, are the people that get COVID, um, get back on their bikes, get back on their trainers, and, and don't feel right. And the question is, why is that? Is it, is it because of an underlying lingering heart problem? Is it because of lung problems? Is it just this concept of there being long haulers in the COVID infection world? And again, uh, jury's still out on what to do with that. Yeah. One of the things we see in this population that you mentioned of kind of uh, elite athletes, but also very hard charging recreational athletes, is that when they do get back on the bike or start running again, or get back in the gym, that even if they don't feel great, and I would probably put myself in this category too. I haven't been through this, but I, I can I can sympathize. If you don't feel great, the idea is well, okay, let's push through this workout. Let's get back on the bike tomorrow. Push through again. Kind of, you know, eventually it'll get there. It, the, we don't tend to just pull the plug and be like, okay, something's wrong. Let's go get checked out. But there might be rationale for that. There might be, and I, I think the, the the reality is, as you know well, is that many of the people we're talking about. Um, will have not taken a week or two off of exercise in many years prior to having had COVID. And so there's this um, uncertainty about what represents just some degree of deconditioning, which can happen, unfortunately, pretty quickly versus lingering effects of COVID. And, you know, I, I don't know if there's a perfect way to reconcile this uh, 
However, I do think it's important for people that are recovering from COVID to ease themselves back into their regimen and not to assume that if they're um, if they've been sick at home in bed for two weeks that they can hop on and put in full volume and intensity right after they feel better. And part of that is allowing the reconditioning to occur safely and successfully so that they can tease out what's really pathologic versus just having taken some time off the bike. Yeah, which is really good advice for any illness they come down with. I mean, we've we've preached this in influenza and, and other viral illnesses for years that you don't work out with a fever. And when you start to come back, you go slowly and kind of see how your body feels. Um, that time off, there, there's a deconditioning, but there's sometimes a taper effect too. And, and we kind of joke in cycling that nothing is quite so good for an athlete's performance as a perfectly timed clavicle fracture, where you've got to sit them down for a while, and then they come back and perform better than expected. So there's multiple reasons, I think, to take it, to take it easy in, in a case like this. Well, you're, you're spot on. I think uh, one of the things that we're seeing, which I, I may not have expected, but as, as our experience grows, is a lot of endurance athletes that get COVID and for the first time are, are really forced to shut it down for a while, come back and they feel better than they have in years. And that's because as a population, endurance athletes from the professional level all the way down to the recreational weekend warriors don't like to rest and recover. But it is quite simply the best way to get faster. Yeah. Oh, for sure. So when when you have a documented case or a suspected case of myocarditis, which is that direct infection of the heart cells themselves. Um, I, I know you've been very uh, um, instrumental in kind of working through some of the, the protocols that when those of us that work with athletes, what we need to do with these athletes to look for this uh, injury to the heart muscle um, and detect it and, and kind of know what to do next with the patients. And that's been, a moving target. And to be fair, this whole conversation may be obsolete in six months, 12 months, you know, as we learn more, that's just kind of how this is playing out. But uh, at the moment, there's a, a bit of a process for taking an athlete and clearing them after COVID from a cardiologic standpoint to get back to training. And I've been through this with a couple of cyclists, a PGA player. Um, it, and it's been interesting for me to see, uh, one, the process, two, the thought process behind it, and three, um, anytime we do big screening, and you're familiar with this, you know, we had one patient who uh, ended up, they, they went through their whole cardiac screening and said, oh, there's nothing wrong from COVID, but we see this late polarization issue, and now they're getting a cath, and they're, you know, and everything turned out fine, but it's one of these things that never would have been investigated otherwise. So there's, I mentioned that to say there's downside to too much testing. There's downside to not enough testing. So with that as kind of some background, where have you and the, the experts who have kind of put out the protocol here, where, where have you landed on what we do for the various uh, athletes as they return? Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm fond of saying that COVID has created far fewer problems and exacerbated a lot of problems that existed prior to the, the pandemic. And the controversies around cardiac screening uh, fall into that bucket. I mean, we've for a long time struggled with what the best approach to screening is. And the only conclusion that I've come to over years of thinking about this is there's no one size fits all. That the screening that you would do in an elite level tour rider is probably very different than what you would do in a, in a, in a high school football player. And we just have to acknowledge that there's variability in terms of how we approach this, and um, that will never be reconciled. And that's never been more alive than in the time of COVID, where we're screening more and finding more. 
Um, I think you're spot on that as we test more, we find more things and we have to ask the question, are we finding things we care about or are we finding things that we don't care about? And I think it's some of both. Um, our approach to putting together algorithms from this, just to go back to the very beginning, were admittedly very conservative. And they stem from the hospital experience where we saw you know, a third of people with infection having evidence of heart injury and said to ourselves, look, we need to be particularly at the, at the elite levels of sport. So elite level endurance athletes, professional team sport athletes, we really need to be testing all of them in some way, shape or form if they truly had documented COVID infection. But why, sorry, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt you, but why is there a difference between pro and elite athletes and like a hard charging recreational athlete? Is it, is it more an issue of physiology and demand or is it resource availability? Uh, it's much more about resource availability. Okay. And, and the, again, the initial algorithms we came up with were driven by requests from elite level sporting organizations to help them figure out how to get their sports up and running. Sure. So the, the very first algorithm that was put together anywhere that I'm aware of was a, a, a blog post that we did through BJSM back in April. And that was a direct request from some of the major sports organizations here in the States asking us if we get our teams back together in May or June, how should we do this? And, and that was and, our reference when putting together the, the UCI's protocol for pro cycling. So your blog post was, um, it, it was really the first thing out there for anyone to, to reference. And, and to be fair, it was, um, it was all kind of guesswork shot in the dark. How can we do this responsibly? And I think what, what we saw is that a lot of testing started happening. And in some respects, that was a good thing because it's allowed us now to accrue a lot of experience with um, high-level athletes. And quite honestly, what we're finding is that the people that have pathology are those people that were really sick enough to at least be home stuck in bed for a week or two. That the mild cases and certainly the asymptomatic cases um, are very, very unlikely to have any residual COVID heart pathology. So indeed, as we move from a very conservative recommendation through this early first few months of experience. You'll see just coming up next Monday, another revision of our algorithm that we published, which don't recommend screening at all in any asymptomatic or mild COVID cases. That's great. That's about what I, about what I was going to ask you is in those asymptomatic and mild cases, last I've seen, we're still doing EKGs, but it sounds like maybe that's going to fall by the wayside. It's going to fall by the wayside because it's just not necessary. I think the one caveat to that would be an athlete that identifies as having had mild disease and then gets back into a training regimen, as we were talking about earlier, is concerned about having symptoms that they can't truly believe are deconditioning. And in that case, I think, and again, still a lot to learn about that population, but there is pause for concern. And there's when the sports medicine team needs to come together and figure out what the, what the best testing strategy looks like. Yeah. For that individual specifically, yep. based on symptoms, history, all those things. Yeah. I think what we don't want to see happening is everyone testing every single high school and collegiate athlete that comes back into sport um, simply because they're concerned about COVID. It's just going to be low yield. It's going to be resource intensive, and it's going to find a lot of things that are quite honestly not of any relevance to their safety. Yeah. Yeah. And, and those follow-up tests are potentially harmful. Um, so it's you know not just financially harmful, but uh, which counts too, but they can be physically harmful if, if done incorrectly. So it's um, yeah, it's always a consideration. I think a lot of people think more testing, the better, you know, especially people with resources. Uh, they think, you know, well, that's fine. I can buy this test and this test and this test. I just want to check it out. But it's not always so simple. Yeah. And if you want a perfect example of why more testing is not necessarily better, and, and we can talk about this in detail if you want, the experience that we've had with cardiac MRI in the COVID era has definitively shown that more is not better. Yeah. 
Yeah, I am interested because, you know, two studies that came out in, um, in JAMA or JAMA cardiology in July and September kind of poured some gas on this fire. You know, we saw in, I think it was the July, the one that came out in July was the group in Germany that did cardiac MRIs on a hundred people. The conclusion, and it's not that you can jump straight to the conclusion, but the reason everybody got up in arms was 78 of the hundred had some visible cardiac damage on the MRI that there's questions about their techniques and the data they put out there and all that stuff. But that's a number that catches your attention, right? Um, and then they did one at, uh, at Ohio State looking at NCAA athletes in September, uh, same publication or same journal, 26 athletes, 12 of them had uh, some, some visible issue on cardiac MRI. The question then becomes, is that a problem, especially if they're not symptomatic? And if we were to do the same on someone with you know, a rhinovirus or something common cold, um, would we see this? And obviously does it probably not matter because we've never done this and never had an issue. Yeah. I mean, both of these studies provide very cautionary lessons for us. So the, the Putnam study, which is the study that came out of Germany, um, is a lesson in, in how we generalize findings from one population to another. And in their, in their cohort, a hundred people that had documented COVID infection, many of them with pretty significant disease, mostly older folks with comorbidities. There was MR evidence of abnormality and a significant percentage of them. And so it does raise the question, if you're older and you have problems going into COVID, are you more likely to come out with, with heart injury? I think the answer is yes. But that is not a population that we can use to make any sort of generalizable recommendations or physiologic inferences in when we talk about otherwise healthy athletes of any age. So I, I think that Putnam study got a lot of people concerned, but not directly relevant to the, the, the people we're talking about today. The yeah. Ohio State paper is interesting for another reason, and that is indeed when they did MRIs on these collegiate football players that had COVID infection, they recorded, quote, abnormalities in a significant percentage of them. But we have to remember, and this is a lesson we learned 15 years ago when we started the ECG screening process, that you can't apply a screening test effectively if you don't have good normality data. And so what I mean by that is if you don't know what's norm normal for a specific population and you start testing them, you're very likely to find things that may very well look abnormal, but are simply really normal for that population. Yeah. And again, when we started using ECGs to screen athletes before we had good ECG criteria, 15 to 20% of them had abnormal ECGs. And that's just totally irresponsible to think that we can do that without having normal data. And that's where we are with the MRI right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, it also, it's a cautionary tale about how this, these types of studies get out into the public view. Not that they shouldn't be totally public, but, um, you know, someone who is seeing a clip of this on CNN or Fox or whatever, um, they're going to take one thing away from the headline, but someone who knows how to look at the study and knows some of the caveats that you just put out there, you know, my take, and not as a sports cardiologist, but just as an interested physician was, you know, that raises my eyebrow that, you know, maybe we need to look a little further here, see if there's anything going on, but it's not catastrophic. It doesn't mean that 80% of recovered people now have longstanding cardiac damage. We just have to kind of suss out what's going on here, but that's not what, that doesn't make a Twitter headline. Yeah, and I think what you're getting at is the is the oftentimes awkward interface between the medical community and, and the media. 
right? The folks at Ohio State um, are an incredibly talented group of sports medicine docs and cardiologists. I know many of them well, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for what they did with that study. And their goal was simply to get some preliminary findings out there for the rest of us to digest and think about what next steps should be. Unfortunately, because that type of responsible message is not particularly social media exciting, um, it led to a lot of people twisting this into a, a public health crisis, which just simply is not. Right. Yeah. So with that as some background, if if we've got the asymptomatic and mild cases that we can kind of follow now with just symptomatology, if you're feeling good and you ease back into exercise, go for it. The moderate to severe cases, those that were hospitalized that have lingering symptoms, maybe like and by symptoms, I don't mean just this fatigue, although fatigue can count, but like chest pressure when they exercise, difficulty breathing. What do we do with those patients? So the, the baseline recommendation with those patients would be a, an echocardiogram, so an ultrasound of the heart to look at structure and function, a blood test for cardiac-specific troponin, which is a marker of ongoing cardiac injury. And in our practice, we're exercise testing these people routinely because what, what we've learned when we put them through um, the process of provocative exercise testing is, is really invaluable with respect to risk stratification. Is that an exercise... ECG or, or echo also? Um, it really depends. Typically, we do all of our exercise testing with, with ECG and with metabolic gas exchange because there's okay. so much to be learned from a cardiopulmonary exercise test. Yeah. Um, the use of echo is a little more controversial. We do use it in some situations, but it's not our mainstay. Okay. And are you doing any cardiac MRIs on these patients or is it kind of only when there's a, a very distinct reason, something you're looking for? We're doing cardiac MRIs as a confirmatory test when our pretest probability of myocarditis is high. And what yeah. I mean by that is the patient that presents with typical myocarditis symptoms, so exertional chest pressure, palpitations, generalized fatigue, who then has abnormalities on that first round of testing that, that suggests that myocarditis is present. And we then turn to the MRI to confirm it and to define the severity of the disease, because it really is in the right pretest probability situation, it's the gold standard. But to use it in people that don't have a high pretest probability introduces a lot of room for error. Yeah, which can be said about any test going back. Absolutely. You know, there's not a likelihood that the condition exists, which is pretest probability, then the test probably isn't used well in that population. So if you've got 100 guys and you, you run pregnancy tests, um, you're probably only going to find stuff that doesn't make sense. Right. right. I mean, if, if, if you have a, an accuracy rate of 99%, then one of those men is pregnant. Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we know it doesn't happen. Mazel tov. <laughs> um, so looking at all this, the, the take home that I hear, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the take home I hear is one, don't take this lightly, uh, you know, COVID and its effects between recovery and death. There are things happening there. Um, and, and cardiologic findings are one of them, but also don't catastrophize it. It's, it's probably not rampant is probably not something that's going to infect uh, the vast majority of people who recover from the disease, but pay attention to symptoms. And, and if you have any concerns as you get back to exercising, if you have concerns about how to get back to exercising, talk to your doctor about it, because there, there are some nuances here that might need to be navigated. Yeah, I think that's spot on. I think it's the message that you and I have been giving our patients for years, and that is listen to your body and pay particular attention if your body's giving you signs that things aren't the way they should be. And that's never been more true than in the recovery from COVID pandemic. 
Cool. Aaron, thank you for talking with us about the, the issues around uh, COVID and cardiology. And uh, I look forward to seeing the, the newest algorithms and protocols coming out next week. Yeah, hopefully it's going to result in a lot less unnecessary testing. Yeah, here's the hoping. Thanks, man. Of course. The content of this podcast is meant for general informational and educational purposes only. All listeners should speak with their doctor or medical practitioner before implementing any change in their healthcare regimen. If you're currently a patient at Podium, then you have an established doctor-patient relationship with me, and I'm happy to discuss this with you. If you're not currently a patient at Podium, nothing in this recording establishes a doctor-patient relationship between us, nor does it constitute the practice of medicine nor the dissemination of medical advice. Should you implement any information contained herein without consulting your own physician, you do so at your own risk. Thanks for listening to The Podium. To hear more, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram and Strava. Until next time, thanks for joining us.